0: this episode of the PA Path Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Lohenry, and we are glad you could join us as we seek to better understand the PA profession.
1: And I say to my colleagues, I'm like, you don't get it. Like, just because you change the words in a law, you think like all of a sudden you're free and you can just practice medicine without supervision. I say, that is not the case. And that is not what the Board of Medicine thinks.
0: Well, there you heard it from the very first and only PA to serve on the Idaho State Medical Board in history. Today we speak with Paula Phelps. Paula is the former department chair and current professor and service learning coordinator for the Idaho State University Department of PA Studies. She has an impressive history of writing successful grants that have supported numerous innovations with their program. And she has published her findings in a variety of different journals over the years. She is a graduate of the University of Utah PA program and has been practicing since 1996 in family medicine, public health and women's health. And she now serves the Pocatello Free Clinic at least one day each week. She is an avid runner and certified lifestyle medicine provider who has some very interesting things to say about her experiences in Idaho. Well, Paula, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really excited to hear about Idaho State and about your career in Idaho and the work that you're doing in the community. Uh, First, I'd like to ask if you could tell us about your path to becoming a PA.
1: My path to becoming a PA is long and circuitous. So I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and I always knew I wanted to be in medicine. And when I was 16, I was shadowing a doctor in inner city Cleveland, a family practice doctor. And she was just really about service. And I would take multiple like buses and trains to get to where she was. And I was like, I want to be like her. And I went on to college and I still was interested in medicine. I got a little bit lost in, in my undergraduate and thought really about exercise physiology and workplace fitness. Um, ended up with a double major in biology and sport and movement studies, which is a fancy way of saying uh, physical education. I pursued that for a little while until I met my first PA. And I went to a small liberal arts college in Indiana. I'd never even heard of a PA, never, ever. I worked as a medical assistant for a little while towards the end of college and then also right after college. And then my husband and I moved to Idaho. And of course, Idaho is a great place for physician assistants. And I met my first PA and I thought, wow, that's super cool. That's everything I want. And I think I'd like to pursue it. And I, I knew at the time, this was you know, early 90s. I knew at the time I'd spend the rest of my career explaining what a physician assistant was. And I thought, well, there's no prestige. (laughs) And I was okay with that. But what I really wanted to do, my dream job was to work in Stanley, Idaho, which is population 75. And then it kind of explodes in the summer as a tourist place. And it's in the middle of the sawtooth and it's one of the most beautiful places. I never did get that job. But anyways, that was my dream was to be a rural Idaho PA. I applied to two PA programs at, in the early 90s in the Northwest. That, all we had was Utah and MedEx Northwest. That was it. And so I applied. And the first year, I didn't even get an interview. And they, I said, well, what can I do? Well, you need more clinical experience. And I was working doing bench pharmacology, actually, at that point at the Boise VA. And I was able to become a clinical research coordinator and started coordinating multi-center drug studies for big, you know, losartan. Actually, that was one of the drugs I was working on. Um, it hadn't come to market yet, and got to have a little bit of patient experience. Of course, I didn't think that was quite patient experience enough. And I did things like taught myself EKGs and took ACLS in the days when people would yell at you and make it really, really hard. And eventually I got in and I got into University of Utah. I interviewed at both schools. and I got into University of Utah and that's where I went in 93 and graduated in 95.
0: That's great. We share, we share a couple of things in that story. One is I too applied to MedX when I was uh, first applying to PA schools and I didn't get in there either. So their loss, our gain, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, what's really funny is I also had a dream of being a rural PA. Um, when I was first interviewed, my dream was to move to Montana and work in a small community. And-
1: I'm living closer to a rural PA than you are in LA. I would like to point that out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, you are much closer to the dream than I am. So tell us about your various roles that you've done as a PA. When you graduated, what did you first do and what led you to that? And maybe what led to some changes if you, if you moved into other roles?
1: Well, interestingly enough, in 95, um, my husband was finishing his doctorate here at Idaho State and I had seven job offers and some were in rural Chalice, which is about an hour from Stanley, and um, Salmon, Idaho, which is also rural. I had a rural job offer in Wyoming. I had a clinical research position offer at the university, some other clinical jobs. And I was offered um, a position as academic coordinator for the brand new program that was opening August 95. I graduated June of 95. And at that time, Walter Stein, who I know you know well, was brand new program director here. He came with 20 plus years of experience from the East Coast, Brooklyn and GW to this little tiny place in Pocatello, Idaho and was opening a program. And he had me interview the first class that came. He just needed like a PA student. I was doing my clinicals here. And he started offering me a job and he's like, no, I'm serious. You should come work for me. And I, I'd run into him in the video store blockbuster, right? <laughs> and he would, he'd say, Paula, I'll give you another $5,000. And I looked at him and I said, I'm only going to come work for you if I'm pregnant. And I meant it. My husband and I were trying to start a family. And he looked at me and he said, I don't care if you're pregnant. He said, you can work from home if you want to. And in that moment, I realized that all those clinical jobs, they couldn't say that they would care that I was trying to get pregnant and start a family. But I recognized immediately the flexibility I would have early in my career to start a family and, and that that would be okay. And so the goal was, my husband was going to graduate with his doctorate in two more years. I'd work at Idaho State from 95 to 97. And then we'd hit the road, he'd be a professor someplace and I'd be a rural PA. And that was going to be great. And here we are 26 years later and fell in love with teaching. So, and fell in love. I tell people that one, I'm a dinosaur because I'm the first faculty hire and I've been here the longest. So I tell them I'm the dinosaur of the program when they apply. So you can ask me anything, anything you want. And the other thing I tell them is my husband and I have two daughters, and that the PA program is my third child. And so I've raised it, twenty six years old um, this summer. I uh, I don't know. I guess it's a labor of love. And as far as jobs, I was an academic coordinator for five years. There was just two of us for the first ten months or so. It's just the program director and me. And I had to coordinate all the courses, get people in to teach. I remember constantly apologizing to my students. I'm like, I'm not really sure about this. I just graduated. And I read in my first set of evaluations, you need to stop apologizing, you know, more than we do. And so I tried really hard to exude confidence, even though I still felt like, oh my gosh, I'm just a new grad. How can I be doing this? But then I did that for five years. We got a new program director in about 2001, 2000, 2001, and I became the clinical coordinator. I did that for 10 years, and then I became the program director in 2010.
0: That's great. And it looks like from your background, you've also continued to practice clinically on the side, I would imagine, a day a week or something like that.
1: I've always practiced one day a week, being a new grad and coming to education. I convinced Walter that I really needed (laughs) just to practice a little bit. I also was given a loan repayment as a PA in an underserved area. So at the time, our county, this part of the county was underserved. And so I could qualify for loan repayment, but I had to have like a minimal percentage of time. And I think at that time it was 20%. And so I convinced Walther that I needed one day a week. And I even still have a letter that says you can do this for two years, but you only need to practice for a half a day a week to keep your skills up, which I've never believed. Our program has always had our faculty released a day a week to practice. It's written into their offer letter. And it's something we tout. All of our all of our faculty are clinically active. But as far as what I've done, I started out the first five years in family medicine. Then I went into obstetrics, um, OBGYN, and was actually doing obstetrics, of course, not delivering. though so it is within our scope of practice. It's super hard to get through the bylaws of a, of a hospital. And I would see pregnant patients one day a week, but I'd see them one visit, and then the, the physician would see them the next. And we'd just switch off until they were ready to deliver. And after that, I did public health did a lot of um, family planning at the health department for multiple years, went back to obstetrics, a local clinic, um, lost their physician and is owned by a hospital up the way. And the hospital bought out the practice and they came to me and said, will you run this practice? And they meant full time. And I was like, I got a pretty good gig at the university. How about if I do this a day a week? For six months. And if I love it, yes, I'll leave the university. But I, I was already tenured at that point. And then I was the only provider seeing the patients. Uh, and I would see obstetric patients again, and I would see them up to 28 weeks. And then I'd transfer their care, um, low-risk patients to Blackfoot, which is 20 miles away. And then the physicians, the gynecologists, the obstetricians would take care. And I've worked in migrant health. Uh, Family practice, migrant health and internal medicine, where I was the main working for a female internist and she just didn't want to do women's health. She's like, I'm a woman and people keep coming to me because they think I'm a woman. I'm going to take care of that. And she said, I don't want to take care of that. So I would do all the women's health care for her practice. I also got really, really good in that practice at thyroid and menopause. Those are like messing yeah. with people's hormones. It got really sort of, of the bread and butter of my practice for about seven years. Uh, I returned to migrant health and now, and then I came back to uh, office gynecology, that office gynecology practice. I loved, it was a great fit for me. The physician and I were about the same age. We had sort of the same philosophy of taking care of patients and really very patient centered. She still used paper chart. And then COVID hit, she had her own set of chronic diseases and problems. And she just said, you know what, I'm shutting my doors because of COVID and basically took early retirement. And I thought, well, I'll just sit out COVID for a few months and go volunteer at the free clinic. And I've been there ever since. And it also is a perfect fit.
0: So one of the things you've done for PAEA is you've actually spoken about how to get a HRSA grant. You have several HRSA grants that you've achieved. Can you tell us a little bit more about your HRSA grants?
1: I can talk to you about grant work and lifestyle medicine, and I can put it all into like yesterday at clinic and tell you about seven different stories. One is my grant work. And so my most recent grant is called the GRIT grant. And so it's increasing effectiveness of rural physician assistants. And it has to do with resilience and all that good stuff. But anyways, the grit grant has ROITs. A ROIT is a rural opportunity interdisciplinary training grant, and we're paying Idaho State University does not pay clinical sites except for my grants. <laughs> we're paying, mm-hmm. we're paying places like the Pocatello Free Clinic to take a PA student in another discipline. So we have athletic training students, farm D residents. And PA students, they are continuously, and it's a great source of income for a free clinic. It's also an unbelievable opportunity for interdisciplinary training. And so that was there yesterday. i What else did I do yesterday? Oh, yeah. My previous HRSA grant it was called the Pipeline Diversity. And I i know you want to talk about pipeline stuff. I know you <laughs> <do>. <laughs> um, So my Pipeline to Diversity Grant, we just finished our sixth year this summer. And it was one portion. There's multiple facets to it, but one portion was reaching out to the local high schools, the rural high schools where there's high Latino um, population, and teaching dual enrollment medical Spanish. and in those and then exposing those students to different career paths, physician assistant, pa, nursing, dentistry, all the different things. And yesterday, my interpreter, was a student who has started in Snake River High School about 25 miles from here. She is a first generation Mexican American and planning to go to dental school. So I didn't win her over for my career path. She is now a senior at Idaho State University. has just submitted her dental applications and she was my interpreter yesterday because I still see about 30% of our population that we see is undocumented immigrants who mostly speaks Spanish. And so that was pretty awesome. And then the medical assistant is one of my grit scholars from my new grant. She is a sophomore at Idaho state. And she was actually, and I shouldn't say she's in her second year at Idaho state. She was offered, um, early admissions is what our grit program is. And so we offer early admission decision to people who have junior status And we have 24 spots a year, 12 at College of Idaho, which is our small liberal arts college partnership in Caldwell, and then 12 here. She was one of them as an incoming freshman. She already had 39 credits because of dual enrollment and AP classes from her small rural high school. And she was also one of my pipeline students. Then she was accepted into our Grit Scholar she was given a scholarship for undergraduate as well as early decision. And part of her scholarship is giving her experience places like the free clinic. She's working as a medical assistant. So yesterday was pretty
0: awesome. That's great. So you had mentioned that you listened to the the podcast with Terry Scott and and obviously Terry and I talked about Pipeline. We, We also talked about the ARC standard on diversity and it sounds like Idaho State is meeting that through these kind of HERSA grants that have really built programs that have supported your pipeline work.
1: Absolutely. And Idaho State has a long history of HRSA grants, back to our first director. And we, you know, for many years we were supported by HERSA and um, PA training, I imagine, was what they were called at the time. And then, oh gosh, I want to say more than 15 years ago. We received a grant force, and it was a HRSA grant. And the main focus of it was service learning, and that's carried forward today. And so, at the time, in Walter Stein's really unpc way of saying things, he was just like, "Yep, we want to take care of crazy people, incarcerated people, people of color," and he'd go through this whole this whole list of people. But in essence, the service learning program was set up at our very white bread Idaho school to give exposure to our students of different cultures, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, um, living conditions, all sorts of things. And that's since grown into us really wanting to create diversity in our program so that our program looks more like the, the patients we serve and the demographics of Idaho. So our um, next major grants had to do with pipeline for uh, Latino students. And then we also received the GRIT grant and the GRIT grant from HERSA was also early decision enrollment. And again, really focus on Latinx population. However, in Idaho in 2020, about March, There was a law that's passed that no state institution can give preference, scholarships, anything to any of the protected classes. And so we really had to, in order to keep the money that the feds are giving us over a million dollars, almost almost one point five million over over five years for a Latinx Grit Scholarship for rural students from migrant families, um, we had to rewrite the demographics and you can look on our website and it's, it's you know, paisu.edu um, slash grit and it'll show it's like rural students who speak a second language, whose families are from agricultural background. So who have great knowledge and experience of different cultures and, you know, and so anyways, I mean, they're more. Ways. Oh,
0: Paula, that so, is that is awesome. Talk and, about grit. You figured out a way around the system.
1: <laughs> oh, I know we I'm going to tell you right up front, I live in a crazy state. The fallout from the grit grant. And though I'm not at all in favor of that law that was passed and it's an anti-affirmative action law is basically what it is. Um, the fallout for that is the people who applied. Who some super cool people who never would have been eligible the first time. One was a person who was first generation refugee, and he spoke Arabic, Arabic, French, and Spanish. Grew up in Twin Falls, Idaho, and he identified as um, an individual as, as bisexual. And I was like, "Huh, you know that it was a." Great background. he was he really wants to help people from multiple different um, cultures and under sort of populations. There was another individual who applied the first year who's from rural Idaho who's a medical assistant at a local emergency room there. It's called Gooding. and it's right next to the Idaho School for the Deaf and Blind. And she said, there's such a huge need for American Sign Language. Again, I wouldn't have thought, oh, we need American Sign Language in rural Idaho. I wouldn't have thought that. Sure. And so I, unfortunately, the two individuals I just mentioned um, for other reasons didn't, didn't qualify, but it really opened my idea, my eyes, I should say, to the idea of us really being broad. And really, you know, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, I really want to think broadly. I had, when I wrote the grant, an idea of, yes, there's such a huge need in Idaho. We have so many underserved rural populations. We need Spanish out there. We need people who come from the communities so that we're back to the communities. But it has been broadened to more than I had really thought about.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, it certainly shows your creativity in trying to navigate some, you know, really challenging political perspectives and kudos to you and your team for continuing to advocate for, for those words that you can't use diversity and inclusion. <laughs> How crazy is that? Let's, let's shift gears. Tell us a little bit about your role on the Idaho state board of medicine, because I think that's a really unique role for a PA to serve. And you were the first PA on that board.
1: I was appointed summer 2019 by our governor. And as you said, I'm the first PA to serve um, on the state board of medicine. It's it's very eye-opening for multiple reasons. I now tell my colleagues, I am truly the most conservative PA in the state. I'm pretty sure that's why the governor chose me. But part of it is my age. I, you know, I graduated from PA school in the mid-90s and The era in which I was trained, I was trained as a physician extender going into a practice with a physician. And now that's not what medicine is anymore, it's corporate. And I sit on the board of medicine with people. Who are trained in my generation or, or older for the most part. And when I hear my colleagues talking about, wow, we need new legislation, which by the way, Idaho just passed new legislation. Now we have a collaborative physician agreement. We no longer have supervising physician status. And I say to my colleagues, I'm like, you don't get it. Like just because you change the words in a law you think like all of a sudden you're free and you can just practice medicine without supervision. I say like, that is not the case, and that is not what the board of medicine thinks. And so it's very eye opening because I get it. And when I sit with ten other people who still want to say, "Well, that person's not a physician. How do they have the expertise to do what they want?" Show me the evidence. We have to keep coming up to the table and saying, this is why we can do what we do. And it's not just about changing the name. And I'll say that to my national colleagues, too. It's not about changing the name. There's a lot more conversation that needs to take place. And so that's one of the reasons it's been eye opening is really about the reality of changing a culture in medicine for us to be truly accepted. As partners and for people to truly understand our scope of practice is a lot. And I thought, oh, we're going to physician associate and everybody's like, rah, rah. Yeah. Who cares? It doesn't make a difference. There are many other, many other areas where we need to be doing education. So that's one eye opener. And then the other eye opener is the amount of suffering that clinicians are going through both in, in all clinicians. Our Board of Medicine serves uh, physicians, PAs, athletic trainers, registered dietitians, a respiratory therapists, and now we have naturopaths as well. That was new last year. And across the board, though I mostly see it with physician assistants and physicians, is the amount of suffering as far as addiction, burnout is, is really tough. And so the reason is that people come before the board of medicine or their cases come before the board of medicine are really sad. And I see cases for people I've never, ever, ever known. Um, And I also see cases after training over a thousand PAs in the state for people I know who at one point were super healthy. They had balanced lives, well, as balanced as you can have in PA school. But anyways, right, right. That,
0: that,
1: that they were well and they were sober and they weren't burned out and they're now coming before the board for other reasons. And it's it's very sad. And so I look at some of the things that we're doing right now. Persa just you know, put out an announcement and grants are due the end of August for resilience. Um, for a grant for resilience and for training clinicians and PAs, nurses, all healthcare providers, physicians, everyone in in resiliency, and that's part of what my my grant grant is as well. But there's there's such a need, and especially after COVID, it's it's very yeah. very difficult.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, I served on the NCCPA review committee for mm-hmm. a couple of years when I was on their board of directors, and. We saw the same cases because once they lose their license, uh, their certification is up for question. And you're right. It's heartbreaking to see these PAs who have worked on an average of seven to 10 years to get into PA school and become a PA who have, you know, seen it all in jeopardy from really difficult life choices related to stress and just bad judgment. Certainly to your point, impacted by the incredible stress that they're experiencing. Yeah. So tell us about Idaho State. You've been there for a long time. What 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 makes Idaho State stand out from your perspective? And what are you looking for in applicants who ultimately are successful in getting into Idaho State?
1: I thought about this question since you sent it to me ahead of time and I thought about it and I I always think, well, I always tell applicants there's two things that set us apart. But as I set Back and really thought about it. I thought there's four things that set us apart, and the first two things um, that we've always told people is that we're a program that's both high touch and high tech. And what I mean by that is we're very casual. You know, people come to interview, and we talk about mountain casual. You know, we're we're a mountain state. We're mountain casual, not super super um, formal. People call me Paula. Our lobby. Um, is a place where people will take naps on couches, you know, it's, it's, it's informal and every student has, you know, relationship with the professors and with their classmates. So that high touch and being very, very student focused and then a high tech, because in 2007, we grew from Pocatello to Meridian, which is a three hour drive. And then in 2014, we grew again to Caldwell, which is four hours from Pocatello. So we transmit our program simultaneously to three campuses. I mean, there there are three campuses. And this was done long before anybody was doing Zoom. We actually picked up Zoom um, a few years before the pandemic. And when the pandemic came, you know, our, our president closed the campus one day and it was like, you know, it was a Friday, the March 17th, 2020, and we were up and running on Monday, like com- seamlessly. And we sure. were able to deliver our curriculum and we continue to use other high tech means, but we really focus on how to use technology. It was just part of a grant for rural telehealth and how we can put different components of that into our curriculum as well. So high-touch, high-tech is one. Absolutely, our Spanish for Health profession is a second. We are known throughout the country as being a as being a place for people to come who really want to experience more medical Spanish and get their graduate certificate in Spanish for Health Professions along with their, their PA um, certificate and degree. And so people come. I've got an incoming student right now from Annapolis, Maryland, who sought us out, and he's like, you are my number one choice. He then applied to our Latino health track, which was initially HRSA funded, and now it's privately funded for students. Once they're in the program, they receive scholarship, they work on their or their graduate certificate, and they do five of their eight rotations in Latinx communities where they can practice Spanish. That's two. Three is lifestyle medicine, which we haven't talked about at all, but five are actually six of our, our faculty are certified um, diplomates in, from the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine and the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. We've incorporated that into our curriculum and are hoping to open a postgraduate residency in lifestyle medicine, which will be the first one in the country for PAs. I don't know if it'll get past the Board of education whoever knows about these things but anyways sure
0: that's great and
1: and then finally with our donor i realize we're in a very unique situation with scholarships so we have our latino health track scholarship we have our grit scholars which is undergraduate scholarship and the early admission decision and then we have 10 million dollars that's going to be given out in large chunks every year to every student who is enrolled. And so those are the four things that set us apart.
0: That's fantastic. I mean, certainly you haven't struggled to have applicants before this podcast, but I suspect (laughs) that anybody listening is going to add your school to the list just hearing about these opportunities. That's really phenomenal. Paul. thank you so much for taking the time with us today. This is really interesting. And what what a great niche you've carved out for yourself there now, and uh, really also congrats to all the success at Idaho State. It sounds like there are some really exciting times ahead for for you and your students as well.
1: Thank you very much. It's been an honor, and I'm still tickled that you invited me here, so thank you.
0: I want to thank our guest, Paula Phelps, for sharing her insights about the Idaho State University Department of PA Studies and about all of the innovative programs they have implemented to serve the communities in and around Idaho. Tune in next week as we speak to Dr. Adrienne Banning, who's an associate clinical professor at Drexel University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She's been a faculty member there since 2008 and is a well-known evidence-based medicine guru and a well-published author in the PA profession. She's also a co-host of three novel PA-centric podcasts, and we are very much looking forward to learning from her perspectives about how to successfully navigate the podcast world. Until next time, I wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life. And thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of the University of Southern California.